lights are on. Okay. Uh, let me get an introduction in here. Hi, welcome to the podcast. I am Rich. I'm Sandy, and uh, you're you're joining us in our kitchen for the Scuttlebutt podcast for Trapping Inc. TV. And we have as our special guest today, Alan Purdy. Uh, Alan Purdy, you might remember from our very first season on uh, Trapping Inc., uh, came trapping with us with the Marshall family. Alan, you are now 76 years old. Yes, I am. Yes, and you've been trapping since nine, nine years of age? Yeah. Yes. You've seen a lot of changes in your, in your day. Yes. Yes, you have. M- most and of them are recent ones. <laughs> <laughs> so Alan was just telling us um, about how he, how he started into, into trapping. And when he was nine years old, he got to know the father of the neighbor kids. And you said that you didn't really like to spend any time with the kids. You'd rather, you'd rather uh, be spending time with their dad and learning about trapping. Yes, because that was uh, his income. That's what he did in life, especially in the wintertime. Of course, trapping is just a season. And so um, I asked him all kinds of questions. And because he had a registered trap line, it included the land that he owned. And that's the land that uh, he lived on and the land that we went through when we walked to school. And so I would go with him on these weekend trips this Sunday afternoon and look at the sets with him. And he would catch a mink in those sets and sometimes a weasel. There was a lot of mink there because just prior to this, mink ranching was a very popular, popular thing. And uh, uh, a lot of these mink actually got away. And... uh, that's what caused so many mink to be. It's always a common thing to catch mink. Back then, and uh, you would definitely get $40 for that mink. And $40? Yes. And that was a was fortune back not then. Not uncommon to get 60 Holy. In the meantime, <laughs> uh, uh, like, for instance, the family allowance for three kids was approximately $36 for all three. So that gives you an idea of how powerful um, the body of a mink was. You could, it was better than a month's wages. Wow. And so I knew that if I could learn enough about trapping to go on my own, that I could break away and get away from this. Uh, bad treatment that I was getting from my dad. That's why I took Reudin as serious as I did and appreciated him Oop. like I did. This is sick here. This and is sliding down on you a bit there. There you go. <laughs> so this lasted from 1990, uh, uh, 1951 until 1957. In 1957, in September of 1957, the beginning of it, the school informs me that I failed grade 8, and I was totally, totally devastated. I was in tears over this because I just wasted a whole tough year. And that was more than I was capable of handling. So I was determined to quit school. But the school protested. Uh, They tried to talk me out of it and give me reasons for uh, talking me out of it. So finally they called my mother in because they weren't getting anywhere with me. 
And so I said to them, listen here, you guys are accusing me of not learning what you're teaching me, and you're not teaching me what I want to learn. And they quieted, and they said, well, what is it you want to learn? I said, I want to learn about trapping. And you are not teaching anything about it, but I'm learning it anyway because of Eugene. And they turned to my mother, and they said, oh, my goodness, that's true. I'd already had my name in the newspaper three times about a beaver harvest. And they said to her, he'll do fine doing that because he's already well established with it. And so they quit fighting me, and that's how come I started my little trapping life at uh, 1957 at the age of 14. And uh, it was September, but the season wasn't open yet. But I had to get out there, and I was traveling on foot. There's no snow, so it was just a, a walk-in trip. And so I did walk in. I didn't have time to build a cabin, so I just built a lean-to by a lake called Bifflin Lake. The, the trap line was owned by uh, um, Joe Netto, and I told him what happened to me, that I failed grade eight, and I'm ready to start my own life, and uh, I learned enough from Eugene, and I got a, 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 a partner license from Joe to be on his line, and so I chopped that winter, but I didn't have a cabin, so I just built a lean-to, and I spent the winter in the lean-to, so my skidoo suit and was my skidoo suit in the daytime, and it was my pajamas at night. <laughs> and that's how winter went that year. And so, how far did you have to go travel to get to your trap line? Seventeen miles. And you walked the seventeen miles. Yeah, until it snowed. And I tried snowshoes at that time. As soon as it snowed, it was about a half a foot of snow. And what I noticed about the snowshoes is when you take the one foot and put it in front of the other, it flattens all the willows and the rose bushes and everything. You can't put the other one up that you need to move because of the first one holding the brush down. So within 20 minutes, I was off of those snowshoes and I put skis on. <laughs> they, all I had to do with them was just slide one ahead of the other. And the, in the, the, uh, the underbrush didn't interfere with that. So I stayed on snowshoes from 1957 until 1975. In 1975, I had no intention of giving up the snowshoes at all, or the skis, pardon me. But my sister and her husband came to visit me, and her husband saw that I was doing this on skis, and he was devastated. He couldn't accept this. And he didn't share that with me, but he did with Carol, my sister. And so he asked me if I would come to their place and teach their young children. He had two boys, and uh, neither one was 10 years old yet. And he wanted to know if I would teach them about trapping. So I said, sure, Pete, I'll do exactly that. So I came, and he's apologizing to me about not having these skis. But he said, I got two skidoos. He said, if you would follow me on the second skidoo, he said, I'm sure we can uh, make a success story out of this. So I listened to what he said, and I said, I'll do the best I can, if, uh, and uh, we'll take it from there. And so that's how uh, I traveled to go to where I lived at this very time. There's a lake where I live, and 
we went to that lake, but it was just a, a bush trail to get in there. It's not a road like it is now. And uh, I showed those boys how to set a beaver trap, how to find a place where the trap is supposed to be, and how to recognize that this is the right place by the air bubbles that are underneath it. The ice explained why the bubbles are there and uh, what's going on underneath the ice there. So we set the trap, and sure enough, they caught a beaver, and they wound <laughs> up catching uh, pretty much all the beavers that were there. Then on the same house, I showed them how to make a natural-looking mink set. So we did that, and uh, before the winter was over, they successfully caught a mink there, and then I showed them how to set coyote snares, and they successfully caught coyote uh, also on game trails between that lake and where the house is at. So they were pretty happy, and so was Pete that their kids were uh, learning about trapping. And, uh, and so what happened over that is I was hooked on that skidoo. <laughs> <laughs> I was really impressed. And so it just so happened that at that time, Athabasca had a store called McLeod's. And there was a man there by the name of Ellis Crumb. He had bought himself a brand new uh, Articat 440 uh, uh, Panther. But he had developed cancer, and his cancer had become active. And it become so active, it robbed him of so much strength, body strength, he couldn't even start that skidoo. And so he wound up selling it to me for $1,200 in 1957. And uh, I've had that machine until I wore it out. And I've not been on my ski since then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, let's so talk Pete about admitted that. to me later that it, that's what he, he wanted me to teach his kids to trap for it because he couldn't, he, uh, it was more important that uh, he gets me off of those skis rather than his kids to see the trapping. <laughs> he was an oil field man, and, and, uh, but the geese were making their own money. And to this very day now, I have a tremendous, special, very noticeable relationship with all four of his kids over my involvement with them when they were kids. That's, that is a very special thing. And so from there, um, it's, uh, and I trapped from 57 till 1964 there. And, uh, In 1964, in the spring of 64, well, I better back up here a little bit. So, tell, I, tell us about the very first winter. How pardon? much? How much fur did you catch that very first winter when you're living out of the uh, out of your lean-to? I the only way I know how to answer that question is that uh, I packed the fur out on my back on those skis, and there was a fellow trapping not that far from me and he was a fellow that hauled he I don't know what you call him but he what he did uh he, he hauled livestock to the market in Edmonton and it was out of Edmonton it was before he even get there but it was just in that direction not far from Edmonton okay and he was a trapper and so he was the one that took me in his three-ton truck and I was had a load of 
cattle on the back of it, and he took me to Edmonton per auction. And, but it was in the spring now, um, the end of May, and uh, so there was no more auctions. And so Edmonton per auction offered me $1,900 for what fur I had in 1957. And uh, so, uh, I accepted it, and it was sold the following winter, and I got practically almost that much more again after they sold it. But with the $1,900, a friend of mine, his name is Charlie Woodcock, he still lives, he's in Edmonton, and he took me to a place called Ed, uh, Alberta Government Surplus Building. It was in Edmonton on 66th Street and the Fort Road. And they, the government was selling Skidoos, they sold, uh, um, and uh, another thing they sold was tents, and I was interested in the tents, and what I noticed there though is you, they, you, they wouldn't sell it to me, you had to put a bid on it, and they wouldn't uh, review the bids later on, and that wasn't suitable to me, but Charlie Woodcox wouldn't get off my back. He just kept on and on <laughs> pestering me about filling out the form. So to get him off my back, I filled out the form, but I wasn't, I really didn't care what I was writing. So it, it turned out that my writing was putting it unreadable. But I bid $10 for uh, a piece for 10 tents. They couldn't make that out, so they thought I meant $10 for one tent. So they sent me a letter in the mail, and I picked it up at Grossmont's store, which wasn't the first place I would come to when I walk out from my trap line, and they accepted my bid. So I went back on the Greyhound bus, used a cab to go to 66th Street and Fort Road, picked up that tent, and uh, stopped at WWRK. It doesn't exist anymore, but I hear they're, they're going to uh, start that up again and uh, I bought an airtight heater, I bought stove pipes, I bought mosquito coils, I bought nylon rope and tie wire and sweet saw and, uh, and uh, a, a hatchet that would fit in my belt and I don't think I will ever remember all the items that I <laughs> picked up. I went back on the Greyhound bus and he unloads it at the highway and I'm still 17 miles from where my lean-to is, and I got this pile of freight, and I'm on foot, and I'm, how the heck do I get this from here to there? And I remembered my last year in school about having to read a story and write an, uh, an essay about it. And the purpose of that was to, so that the teacher could tell how well I was reading the story. And uh, you can't write anything about the story if you don't understand the story. And this guy was about a, this story was about a native guy in my predicament. And so what he did is he cut a couple of spruce poles. I would estimate them to be 12 feet long. He cut another one and cleaned it up, put some cross pieces on it, and tied them to the two long ones. And then he piled his freight on top of that. Then he... The front two uh, crossbars, he left them far enough apart that he could step in there. And uh, the long ones went past that out in front of him a little bit, about three feet. And he put a rope from the front bar to the back bar, and that went over his shoulders. And he towed his load in. 
So that's what I did. <laughs> and the day and a half later, I was at my uh, lean-to, and I had that tent with me inside that heater, and that afternoon, I put that tent up, and I don't think there was a happier man in Canada than me. <laughs> oh, my goodness, was I some happy, because I could get out of the mosquitoes, and that winter was such an easy winter because it was so much warmer, so much easier to drive fur, and that put me on the map. I was you, well on my way after that. You said to me one time that the, when I asked you what was the toughest thing about that first winter was, was that your fur didn't dry, dry evenly in the uh, lean-to. Yes, that's true. I found that my biggest hurdle was trying to properly dry that fur. And that remains to this day. I'll never forget the difficulty that was. As far as my discomfort and smoke uh, problems and everything, to me that was extremely minor compared to drying fur and compared to what it was like at home. So what did you catch for fur that year? Was it mink and coyotes or what, 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 was, what was the fur you were catching? A big uh, uh, item was mink. Okay. And another item was uh, squirrels. I got uh, um, four lynx, and I did get some beavers. I got quite a few muskrats, and um, there was no such thing as uh, Martin there. But I did get, a, uh, a, I think that was four, four fishers, and so this was my main fur. And at that time, in 1964, I was averaging $750 for a link then. Wow, that's great. And that's where that uh, $1,900 comes in. So even that, they weren't trying to pay me for like a, a, a final payment. They were just giving me an advance until the, till the sale happened. And, and uh, Man, talk about a meant-to-be thing. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you, you said that, uh, that mink was, was an animal that you targeted because there were so many of them and they were worth so much. What was your favorite mink set? Like, what was your favorite setup for mink? My favorite setup for mink, it just, just so happened that uh, there was a creek going from Bifflin Lake towards uh, uh, September Lake, and there was some uh, beaver activity in it. And there was along these little dams, it was just swarming with um, sticklebacks. It's a type of minnow, but it never produces fish. It's just a minnow. It always is a minnow. And the mink was the, always there. Yep, yep. And so I caught myself a muskrat, and I made a pork stick out of a willow, and I stood it about at least a foot high, were from the bottom of the fork, and I put the muskrat um, caster there. It's a tiny little thing, but the, and put a number one and a half trap about four inches back, and the mink would stand there to smell that uh, the mink caster, and step in the trap with the back feet, and he was mine. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> and I averaged seventy mink that winter. Seventy. Yeah. Wow. Holy cow. And what was the price that you got on the mink? Top money was $60. Oh, my heaven. That's, like, that's, that's, that's just, for, yeah. And that's in 1964 dollars, you know, yeah. compared to today, right? 
Yeah, yeah it was actually 1957. In 57, okay. Yeah, and it lasted till 64. Okay. Uh, okay. Now, in 1960, okay. So now I got this tent, and I had a wonderful winter that winter. The next summer, I have everything I need or daily there. So I built my very, very first cabin that summer. Okay. I started it in June, and by the beginning of August, I was in it. So, and you were 16 then? Uh, and I was 16. I was 16 then, yeah. Wow. Okay. <laughs> and how big was your cabin? I was. I built it the same size as the tent, so I made it <laughs> 12 feet wide and 14 feet long because of even the tent felt so huge compared to my lean-to. Of course. So right. I felt like, and I had rails along. I made a frame inside the tent, and I had rails from one corner to the other, and I could hang everything up. So I was cooking on the, the, the wood airtight heater up until this time, but that particular summer, I wound up going in there with a Coleman gas lamp plus a Coleman camps, uh, gas camp stove. And I can remember the camp stove being $19.99. Today, that same heater is $130. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But now, now you're now you're stepping in tall cotton, huh? That was that was pretty good stuff cooking on a stove like that. Yeah. <laughs> and the what, what what the reason that was so necessary. But this is my opinion, is that I found that if I cooked on that, that uh, wood heater, especially when the season was over, because I was staying there year-round most of the time, it was too hot in there. But right. it, the gas stove didn't give me that problem. Oh, there you go. <laughs> so I was living in luxury. Oh, yeah, no doubt. So you- now in 1964, I was there. It was the seventh day of June, and I could hear a roar. Well, that past winter, I'd hear that roar often. And apparently one of these fighter jets, they, they flew so fast that they were flying faster than, than sound. And there was, they were there was breaking the sound barrier. Yep. It right. was common back then. And I looked up and I'm watching for it. And I did see the surf planes. They were out of the mail. There were three of them. And there were five engine search planes. Oh. They had... That two engines on both sides of the wing, so there was four engines, and there was one engine even on the back. Oh, there you go. There were huge things, and because they had so much propeller power, it was amazing how slow they could fly and stay in the air. Right. So I was looking for them, and I never got to see them. And I must have looked about five times, and each time it sounded like they're closer. On the fifth time. I still didn't see them, and as I lowered my eyes towards the ground, at the top of the trees, I seen this great big, huge black smoke, and it was rolling like a reel on a combine, and it was rolling backwards, and it was coming straight towards me. Within 10 minutes, it was right there where I am. I grabbed the 308 rifle that I had just bought at that time, and I jumped into the creek, and the Creek was the one that runs out of Bifflin Lake, to, uh, the one that the sticklebacks are in. And there was a willow there that the ice going out had laid down, and there had lots of members in it. It was about the size of a 45-gallon barrel and almost laying flat, but it did come out of the water. I'd laid on that. 
the fire itself warmed the creek enough that there was steam coming off of it. Because there was steam coming off of it, that area was smoke-free air for me to breathe. And I wouldn't recognize the body of that then. I would, that would come to me later. But that's how I survived that fire, was by being in that creek and having that nice air to breathe because of the steam keeping the smoke away. And I come out, I went in 10 o'clock in the morning, and the next morning I called out at 10 o'clock again. The ground was hot, the air was smoky, but the ground was too hot for me to leave, so I wound up staying there another 24 hours. And I left at noon the next day. And it wasn't as bad for smoke, and the ground wasn't so hot, but oh my goodness, what I didn't realize is with that 17-mile distance that the fire doesn't burn in a straight line, and I would run into that fire before I got out of that bush, and that's what happened. So I had to make a circle, and I came to a creek that had a beaver dam on it with willows, and the fire was burning at, right at that dam. So I went through the fire there because there was nothing to go back to, and being young yet, my appetite which had kicked in big time and and uh, so I was hungry. So I went through it, burnt my hair and my whiskers that I had then and eyebrows and lashes and I went to the Idle Lake farm where my mother was and she smelt the hair, the burnt hair. She called my name, I answered. She'd come running to me and she knew I was in a bad place because the radio was telling her where the, where the fire was and she knew that I was there but she just kept that to herself and so she asked me what I experienced and I told her what I just said and so it would be 1975 before I would trap in that area again and uh, so I did and built cabin number two and Lo and behold, I'm still tapping to this day. <laughs> <laughs> and what a lot of changes like that! That what an experience. So that then was the common trap. The acceptable trap then was the good old foothold trap, and by this time it had been in use for well over 200 years. And be, now I was a teenager then, entering my 20s. Now I'm in my 70s. And even by the time I entered my 60s, uh, 1985, the fur market crashed bad, so bad that Link dropped from uh, a $750 average to a $30 top price. And they claimed that they had success in Europe with ranching these uh, links. And uh, they, because they had success, they flooded the market market with um, so bad that there would be years and years before they used up the surplus of that. And that's why the fur price has dropped so much because they haven't used that surplus up yet. Right. So I've never seen a decent length price since then. So now, um, well, I'm still trapping. And as of 2017, I recognize that um, I have to do something different. So what I did is I quit shipping my fur. I keep it now. I tan it. I've taken courses about it. 
and I'm selling Tanper, and I'm back to getting 300 plus for Lincoln, and uh, 60, 80, 100, $120 for Mink, uh, as high as 250 for Martin, I never mentioned that, that's in the area I'm at now, and uh, 250 for Fishers, and beavers, that's where my volume is. That's my volume for and So I'm averaging 120 to um, $180 for beavers. You uh, had a big, big winter once, though, on squirrels, right? Yes, I did. And, uh, so how that came about, as I mentioned, I wasn't trapping after the fire till 75. And I was trapping at a place called the September Lake. But just then, that's where I built cabin number two. It's still there to this day. And it doesn't look any different today than the, the year I built it. And that's because it's being looked after. But that Peach Lake was becoming a village. And it did become a village. And because it became a village, oh my gosh. My September Lake trap line was vandalized. Even when I was there, it was vandalized. If I was at the traps, they vandalized the cabin. If I was at the cabin, they vandalized the sets. And so Fish and Wildlife, uh, they only helped me once, these, uh, these vandalizers. They, I think it was an accident. They were driving past uh, on a lake, past uh, push-ups that had traps in them, and there was a willow for the trap, portable anchor is what I call it. And they happened to hook it and they pulled it out of the, the, the push-up and there was a rat in that trap. So now they pull all of the willows out, blood all over the ice, the willow is still there, but there's no rat and there's no trap. So Fish and Wildlife um, came in and looked at this and they replaced all my traps and the second time they, these guys vandalized my cabin. I was out looking at my traps and I came to my cabin. I had left a pot of moose ribs cooking for me and I'd already had the vegetables. Had the fire turned right down to a pilot and it would just simmer and be all ready for me. When I got, but the cabin was full of smoke when I got back. They helped themselves to my stew. They didn't bother to turn the fire off in the propane stove. So what little bit they left in the pot was like ashes. In the meantime, by the table in there was a picnic type table. The heater was along the wall. opposite wall was a bear heater. And they were shooting beer bottles and Mickey bottles. And the glass on both sides of the heater was um, a good 10 inches deep. And the, run out of bottles, so then they shot the stovepipe, and it looked like a screen. It was so many holes in it. That's how come there was so much smoke in there. Fish and Wildlife said to me that they couldn't do anything unless I had license plate number, the make of the machine, uh, the, the operator's names, and I said, if I had that much information, I wouldn't need you. <laughs> and they said to me, we're warning you not to take the law into your own hands. And I said, I never mentioned anything about that. I just said, I wouldn't need you. Yeah. So I said, I know what I need to do. And they said, once again, we're warning you about the law in your own hands. I said, yes, I heard. And so I sold that line and I went further north. And that north line, it's that Spotted Horse Lake. And what I noticed, it was 
very spruce My goodness, there was a had a very high uh, uh, squirrel population. So um, I built a cabin. I built the cabin in 1982 in the fall, and it was well into the season by then. So I was putting old squirrels in there as best I could. And when the season was over and during the summer, I put a heck of a lot more out. And so I was looking after 4,700 squirrel snares at a time. That would be per day. It would take an 18-hour day to look at them all. And <laughs> Holy cow. There were times when it took more than that. If the weather was so cold that I couldn't take the squirrel out of the pole up, I had to dig the pole off of the 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 snare off of the pole and put a new snare on. Then I was closer to 24 hours a day to look at it. And of course I couldn't handle that. So that would take two days to see them all when it was like that. But most of the time I had warm enough weather. I was doing it with a trike because they were still popular in the 80s. And so the first winter of 83 and 84 with the 4,700 snares, and I had other towns ready to go if one town played out. So I kept that volume up. And that, that winter, my harvest was 15,700 squirrels for 83 and 84. And for 84 and 85, it dropped to 10,700. And again, the following winter, and it stayed like that until the beginning of the 89 and 90 season. And squirrels fell to uh, from two dollars and fifty cents to thirty cents. Fifty cents was top price, but the way they were grading squirrels, I didn't have many fifty centers. I that according to them, I had lots of mostly thirty centers. <laughs> and alpac was coming in there and and cutting my entire trap line down with those tree snippers. And uh, I had went to one of the meetings at Alpac. They said they would only take 20% of my spruce. They're taking all of it, so I went back to them. And they said, Mr. Purdy, your top line is only, is only 20% spruce. I said, that has nothing to do with that. You said, you said you would take 20%. And they said, well, what we meant was your area is 20%. I said, well, that's not what you said. Well, that's what we meant, they said. <laughs> and then Fish and Wildlife came to me and they told me that I could no longer shoot a moose every fall. I had to apply for the draw. They said, the best you can expect is one draw every three years. Squirrels have dropped to 30 cents. They're taking my bush. Can't have a moose. I was devastated. I left there and I went to Red Earth, where I am now. And there was a trap line up at Wood Buffalo National Park. That's the one I went to. I bought it off of a guy by the name of Dennis Woogie Mouth of uh, Crooked Creek, and I'm still there to this day. <laughs> so, uh, we th this has gone on. We'll, we'll, we'll wrap this up pretty quick, but what is your favorite animal to trap? Today, I'll have to admit that my favorite animal, I actually have two of them. Um, the first one will be the Martin. The second one would be the Link. Okay. It's such beautiful fur. Yes, yes. And the only reason I'm turned off a bit by beaver is because that is a tough guy to skin, to skin it properly. Yeah. yeah. 
because it takes a lot, a lot of, of time. Give up on it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so your favorite set for the links then? Do you like to snare them or, or foothold them? I like to foothold. I like to use the soft catch. They still allow that because as long as it's in that set, the link stays alive and it protects itself, even right. from wolves. Right, right. That's important, isn't it? Yeah. That's important to me because I've got a link that is in top condition. There's no damage to it yet. Even the trap hasn't damaged it because I usually look every day. Yeah. 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 Well, Alan, this has been a, a pleasure. Uh, you have so many stories. We could go on and on and on. Uh, our dogs are having a good fight over here, like <laughs> misbehaving unbelievably. <laughs> They're like children. They need attention. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> we've, we've enjoyed our time with you, Alan, and thank you so much. Uh, what you want to just uh, tell everybody to thank you, and uh, maybe we'll see them down the line. Absolutely. Thanks so much for being with us, and thanks for, for joining us, Alan. We, we've been at the rendezvous with you, and... That's where we met you the, for the very first time, and you've got so many great stories to tell. And it's really important to us from a heritage perspective that we get to talk to people like you. So thank you so much for joining us today. Okay, what I'd like to add to this is this particular rendezvous, it's got to be at least my, I would say my 12th one. And it took place at a place called Pincher Creek. Uh, no, Keithy Creek, pardon me. Yep. It's not real far from where I live. It's not much farther than going to the trap line. And they have this silent auction. And this year, what I noticed was that there was um, uh, a willow loop and had a beaver sewed to the willow loop. And it was tanned. And it was tanned by the Winnipeg Company. And uh, so I put a bid on it. And I bid a hundred dollars for it. It's a small beaver, but that doesn't that's not um, doesn't mean anything to me. What caught my attention is the loop itself is the way that first the beaver was dried in the beginning of the fur trade. So that dates back to the very beginning, which is apparently the 16th century. And as for the beaver being on it tanned. The beaver tanned on it is how they are. Um, lots of people are buying this and they hang it on the wall because it's how the beaver is uh, uh, treated to this very day. So the what I, what it meant to me was I was buying something that's present time plus the beginning of the time. So the willow is the beginning of it, and that's what meant so much to me and always well. And the fact that it's tanned is what we're doing with the with it today. So it has the beginning and the present time. And then it was more than, uh, I would have been a lot higher than that if I was at competition. <laughs> but I didn't. I was the one and only guy that bid on that. Oh. And you, I, I'm the guy that started from, 19, uh, from 2007 recognized how important it is to recognize what meant to be and what isn't and not to fight either one of those two. So it was meant to, for, to be for me to have this. And this makes it the most wonderful one, wonderful <laughs> rendezvous, one that's going to have an um, uh, outstanding something to remember for the rest of my life and even beyond that. Well, good. That Thank is you. fantastic. Thank Thanks you so much, much, Alan. Alan.